A wise leader's ear is not made of rubber, but it's also not made of steel. It bends without breaking, yet it knows when to be stiff. Welcome to Coach to Scale, how modern leaders build coaching cultures. I'm your host, Matt Benelli. Join me as we build a community of like-minded professionals who share the belief that effective coaching improves the performance of every team member. Our mission is to help leaders become better coaches. The Coach to Scale podcast is sponsored by Coachum, the world's first AI coaching execution platform that leverages evidence-based coaching to increase quota attainment. And with that, let's get started. Uh, the next guest is someone who is going to personify what I mean uh, in that quote. She's a board member. She's an advisor. She's a mentor and a leader. She's held leadership positions at tech industry stalwarts such as NetApp, BlackBerry, VeriSign. Currently, she's a VP and global head of business development at Cloudflare, also noted on LinkedIn as a top outside sales voice. Um, Lori Harmon, welcome to Coach the Scale. Thank you, Matt. So happy to be here. Really have been looking forward to our conversation today. And, you know, as we know each other from working together in other places. So great to see you again. Great to see you again. Lori, well, how does one earn that moniker on LinkedIn as a top outside sales voice? It looked like something that you didn't put up there, but you, know, you were uh, awarded that from the LinkedIn algorithms or something. How does that work? Well, thanks for that, Matt. It's actually, it's true. So I guess at some point it might have to do with the popularity or the number of views of some of my posts, but LinkedIn will start sending you these questions that are, you know, their questions. And then depending on your number of responses to those questions, they will rate you as an outside sales um, expert. And so most of the, the questions I respond to when I get those, I exclusively try to focus on responding to sales related questions. And that is how I got that badge. It is from LinkedIn. Awesome. Well, um, I, I read a lot of your posts and suggest that the listeners out there do also very, in, very informative. And, um, you know, you've been doing, we were talking about this before, you've been doing this for a while, but you're someone who does a really good job and prides themselves on staying, staying up to date with uh, what's going on uh, in, the, in the real world, because we have a workforce made up of people who don't just look like you and me anymore, which is great. That is so true. It is really imperative, I think, for all leaders today, but especially leaders managing people that are early in their careers. You really have to understand like what motivates them, what gets them going, because it's different than it was maybe when we started our careers. So I have no choice but to stay current, but it, it's fun. I think it keeps people young, so it's, it's really fun to do it. All right. So, so um, Lori, we typically start off the podcast with a myth buster type question. And here, here's what I mean by that. There, there's a lot of myths in our business when it comes to coaching and leading salespeople and sales leaders. What's a myth that you've heard time and time again that you believe is either misguided or complete BS? I love that question. Thank you for asking it, Matt. I would say one of the myths that I hear a lot is that good salespeople are born, not made. And certainly everybody's born with certain qualities and characteristics. You know, if you look at some of the evaluations on people's personas, you might get something like you're a driver, or you're an introvert or you're extrovert. So those things do play a role. And, and certainly some people might or some personalities might lend themselves more to being a seller. But I don't think it's something that you can have an interview with somebody and your gut tells you 
that they're going to be a good salesperson because people can learn and people can be trained. And certainly during my career, I've met people that you might not look at or, or meet for the first time and think, oh, wow, they'd be an amazing salesperson. Yet with the proper training and coaching and their, of course, their drive, they become great salespeople. And so I do think salespeople can be made if that's their passion and that's a direction they want to go. And you have to be careful as a leader, just going with your gut. You certainly need to be hiring people with a, a very structured hiring framework. So you make sure that you're getting the right talent. You know, I, I was uh, interviewing Brent Adamson um, recently, and he said something like that, that kind of ties into what you're saying that I found interesting, which, you know, he talked about, hey, um, you know, we can talk about A players, B players, and C players uh, using those terms. And he said, what's important about how you work and manage with the C players is you as a, as a leader have to show up and be prepared. You approach it in a different way, but the other person's got to be willing to do the work. Right. They have to, it's, it's a two way street. You can't give up on them as, if they're doing the work. And, um, and it's really important. I think that ties back to the, you know, the, they're not born, they're made. You have to, you have an obligation uh, as a leader to help make them if they want to be made, if that makes sense. And that's a really good point. Cause if you look at a seller, when you first hire them, you know, they're not going to close something day two. There's a ramp period. So how do you know as a leader if they are like on track to get there, right? So they have to demonstrate certain things that are not closing deals. Maybe that's activities. Maybe that's pipeline build. Maybe that's number of meetings. Whatever it is for your individual company, you do have to understand, A, are they on track? So they're showing a desire to be successful and doing the right things, even if they're not yet having the right outcomes. So that's a great point. I love it. And Brent's a great guy. I happen to know Brent. So there you go. They have it. I'm surrounding myself with uh, people uh, that are, you know, much, much better and smarter than I am, um, which is great. Uh, so you talked about doing the right things that, you know, yield to the results. And so it's a segue into a question uh, that I have for you about your, your leadership framework. What's in, what informs your framework? Um, what are key elements to it? For my leadership framework, my, my, it's really important to me to lead from the front. So, for example, I'm, I'm not going to ask my team to do something I either won't do or, or haven't done. You know, I mean, yeah, currently I'm not going to be the person making X number of dials per day and sending the emails and doing the actual prospecting, but I have done it. I've been in BDR roles, I've been in inside sales, field, channel roles, all those roles. So I have done it and probably before we had quite as much automation as we have today. So I've really been through all the steps, you know, manually driven versus maybe something telling me, hey, go make this call or or do this. So I think it's really important to lead from the front. And an example of how I would do that today, for we rolled out a new platform earlier this year, and I do know how to use it. I went to all the training that the reps went to, so I would know how they are able to use it. So I might not, again, do it every day, but I also look at it. I look at the reporting. I see what people are doing. So the team knows that I don't want to say I'm monitoring it, but I'm involved with it. I do understand how it can be used and how we can help them to optimize its usage, how we can help them to get better at using and adopting that, which the whole point of that is to make their jobs easier, to remove things like manual steps, manual work, so they can spend more time building relationships and actually doing what they do, which is either you know closing deals for a seller 
or building pipeline for a BDR. So I think leading from the front and just being willing to you know, create the same reports, look at the information, be involved. Don't just say, okay, we'll go do this. I expect you to use this tool. And as um, a leader, not have any insight into actually how it works. Because I think that it could be more cumbersome if you don't really have familiarity with whatever that ask is. It doesn't have to be a tool. It could be some other activity. But whatever it is, you should be familiar enough to know that your ask is, is doable. And that topic is important because there's the investment in sales tools and technology over the past, you know, even call it just 10 years uh, has been exponential. Yet the ROI on a lot of these tools is, is questionable. A lot of companies say they're not getting what they wanted out of it. Um, does that mean the tool stinks? I don't think so. I mean, I always think I look at the Peloton that's over there. That thing's that thing does a great job, but you got to get on it. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and you got to know, know what, what's going on with it. But is what you just talked about, about being on those meetings, understanding what the, you know, what you're rolling out in terms of that platform, that's going to help your sellers. Like you don't use it every day, but do you think that there's uh, a danger that leaders don't feel like they need to? And as a result, they think that, hey, maybe this tool wasn't worth the investment when it just was that they didn't take the time to get it and understand it so that they could hold people accountable to it. I think that's definitely a possibility. I mean, you're right. There's been a huge proliferation. When I started, I mean, we had CRM, but that was kind of it. You set your own task. You decided when to call, when to email. And well, social selling didn't exist. So I don't want to date myself too much. So I was started then and then things started to get added. And I do think companies, you know, one, they can have too many tools, which you have to be careful because you can't get too many, you know, if you're piling on too much. And that becomes that becomes overwhelming for your team because they can't be going to all these tabs and trying to use all these different user, user interfaces. So if you're going to have multiple tools, you need to find a way to integrate them so it's a, a single experience. And yes, if you have something and leaders are not reinforcing it and they're not using it, say, for coaching or for the benefit of their team. I mean, yes, we're going to look at pipeline. We're going to look at multipliers. We're going to look at things that are likely more important to leadership than are at the rep level, but the reps have to get benefit. It's like, what is in it for them? First of all, to even think about adopting a tool, they have to get a benefit out of it. Otherwise they're just going to not want to use it. And if they don't think the leader is actually paying attention or looking at it or looking at the metrics, then even less reason for them to use it if it's not either part of the existing workflow or they feel like it's not going to help them be more productive. There's no reason for them to use it. I think it's key to be, you can't be involved maybe at every level, but you know, be involved, understand what's going on and be looking at the information and figuring out how you can use it to help your team. And of course, use it for yourself as needed. And we are very good. Um, we look at the ROI on our tools and, yeah, you know, we do know what's working and what's not. And because of that, adoption is very important. And what you were talking about with the Peloton example, so maybe maybe you or whoever think people get it. You know, you ride a lot, pandemic, no gym. Gym opens up and starts collecting dust. So you did adopt it, but then something better came along, so you abandon it. But there's also, you get a new tool and maybe the 
the training wasn't appropriate or you tried to you know, eat an elephant in one bite with it. And then you just said, okay, you're trained, like do it. But I find that adoption, adoption can take a while. It's not about eating an elephant in one bite. It's about eating it in small pieces. So back to this tool that we launched earlier this year, we did the launch and the implementation and the initial training, but we didn't do every, we didn't train them on every single feature. That's completely overwhelming. We trained them on enough to get started. And then we kept going, you know, every other week there was, okay, let's talk about this element and this element. So we actually, we went much slower, like so we could give it to them in bite-sized pieces to help drive the adoption. I think you're still going to have people like if they were setting tasks, like going to their calendar and setting reminders, and now they get automatic reminders. Even that I see is sometimes difficult for people to, okay, stop putting it on your calendar. That's an extra step. You're going to get a reminder anyway from the tool. So use this tool. It still takes time. It takes time to change people's habits. It, it, it does. Uh, and, people, human beings don't like change. And, uh, <laughs> oftentimes it said, you know, that people will change when the pain of change is less than the pain of staying the same. Um, it, it, one of the, one of the points, uh, pieces of feedback I get when I speak with leaders at all different levels is they say, you know, Hey Matt, I, what I want to get better at is how to hold people more accountable, right? That, mm -hmm. that comes up a lot. And uh, I know you have a point of view on accountability. What is accountability to you and what isn't it? Well, in terms of accountability, I mean, well, let's say, okay, you have a number to deliver because, you know, you're in sales. Well, you have to be accountable for delivering that number, whether you're like the leader or, you know, maybe you're VP or director or first line, whatever level you are, you have a number or a piece of an overall number and you are accountable for delivering it. So the way you deliver it as a leader is you, well, you have to convince your, your team to perform, right? Or, and it's not just convincing them. There's also helping them. How can you coach them? How can you mentor them? How can you look at metrics and maybe say, well, I noticed that this week you didn't do X, Y, and Z. And, you know, our standards are some, some level. And so what happened? Can I help you? It's, it's important, for example, it's not 200 calls a week. It's 40 calls a day. As an example, you have to break it down and do it daily as in the rep, maybe the manager is looking at on a weekly basis, but I think you have to be accountable for what your team does. And then you have to hold your reps accountable if they have to do certain activities or build a certain amount of pipeline or have an, a certain amount of pipeline as a multiplier to get to their close one number, you have to A, make sure it's there. And if it's not there, well, how can you help them? to get it there? Is it a coaching issue? Is it a, you know, is there some other issue that they're going through where they need more support? But that's where you have to dig in with your team and find out, talk to them, spend time with them, have regular meetings with them, all those things. And, you know, you have to step up yourself. I mean, leadership is not going to buy the fact that, um, you know, what you have to be accountable. That is why you're a leader. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's the mirror. You got to look in the mirror. Um, you brought up something. You brought up uh, calling, right? One of the behaviors uh, of salespeople. Um, you know, you talked about thirty calls a day or two hundred calls a week, whatever it is. Um, and I know, notice, I, I know that you manage a team of a lot of newer career, uh, new and career folks, and they seem to be reading not your not your team per se, but in general, people are reading the books that say calling is dead or emails are dead. What do you say to 
that person who's newer in their career who's like, hey, Lori, Colin's dead. You're, you're going to get with the times. Mm-hmm. And, and believe me, I hear that a lot. However, there are a lot of stats out there that talk about the fact that using the phone is four times more effective in terms of getting a response. It's more effective in terms of getting a conversion either to you know a qualified opportunity or to advance your sales cycle. And a lot of people go, well, nobody ever answers. And, and yeah, honestly, if you make 100 calls, you're, you might get five people to answer. I, I agree that the connection rates are lower, but it's not always about getting an answer. Sometimes if you send an email and then make a phone call and based on that phone call, it prompts them to respond to your email, you now have a response. Was it because your email was great? Maybe, but maybe it was just sitting there. Maybe it was because you followed it up with a phone call. So I think phone has multiple purposes. One is to get them to respond somehow. It could be on social. It could be an email. It could be to call you back. Maybe they pick up the phone and you have a conversation. But ultimately, you you do have to actually have a relationship and talk to people to advance things along. Whatever your process is and whatever role you're playing in sales, typically, you know, with larger deals, especially you need to have a conversation. And yeah, there's a lot of digital sales where people can buy online and that's great. I think it's hugely efficient. But as you get into larger companies and the enterprise space and bigger deals, that's simply just not going to happen if you just email them all day long. In fact, one of the stats is in today's world, it takes between 10 and 14 touches just to get a response. And when I say touches, that's omni-channel. So that's email, that's phone, and that's social. And so in addition to our industry metrics, we also internal metrics. So some of our teams are a lot more bullish on making calls than others. And the ones that are, you can see in their performance, it's better. You can see that their performance on the phone, like if they do a comparison, say, okay, we sent these, we tried an experiment. We sent only emails and we did only dials, like a dial down day that dial down day is way more productive and they found a lot more opportunities than if they just sent emails. So we have the facts that prove that the phone does still work. Yeah. I I saw a McKinsey study recently and the gist of it was that 82% um, or top performers make 82% more uh, outbound calls, cold calls than those who are struggling. Mm -hmm. Um, the struggle that I, that I see with managers is that they have a hard time holding their team accountable when they hear those objections like, you know, the phone's dead, you know, nobody does that anymore, or email's dead. Mm-hmm. Reality is you got to do something. And mm-hmm. so without uh, minimum committed behaviors, um, you know, with a focus on omni-channel and doing so much with phone, so much with email, so much with social, there's no way to hold uh, people accountable. But if they are doing it and then there's nobody calling them back, there's no one responding, isn't that a, a, a clue to or a, a foot in the door to coaching? Because now are we talking about effectiveness? When someone's not doing it, you don't know if, it's, if, it's, uh, if they're not effective or they're just not putting in the work. Those are two different things in there. One's a lot harder to coach than the other. What are your thoughts on the effectiveness when someone's doing all the stuff and they're not getting the results? I do agree. Like if they're doing it and they're not getting the results, it's absolutely coaching opportunity. 
And there's plenty of ways to get there. So for example, there are you know, there's phone recording technologies, right? You can record them leaving the voicemail. So you can hear, is the voicemail effective? And you know, is it appropriate? Would somebody call them back? So I think that's one way to do it. And you could also record, maybe they actually do get a connection, but it, it doesn't go that well. So of course, it typically requires permission in, in a lot of places. So I'm not saying do this randomly, make sure you know the, the privacy and legal laws of your particular area. But I do think if they're trying and they're doing a lot of that, you do have to sit down and help them find out more about what they're doing, give them some tips, coach them on how they could either leave better voicemails. Maybe they need, maybe, you know, you got to look at who they're calling. I mean, let's face it. There's plenty of ways to cheat on dialing. Just like, let me just repeat Dom, my mother all day. I, I don't know. There's plenty of ways to just get in dials that are not real dials to real potential buyers. So you've got to look at what numbers are they calling? So I think there's a lot of things to look at. But yes, if they are doing it, you have to figure out why they're not getting you know, any connections. Yeah, I, my, my take on that, and I've seen it, I've heard it, I've experienced it. If, if you're in that situation where people are calling, um, you know, whatever, fake numbers, there's a, another problem. There's a bigger yeah. problem <laughs> yeah. uh, yes. in, in that organization or that team, uh, or at least with that person. I, I think we could agree on that. Um, you, you, I've heard you talk a lot about the importance of owning your career. Um, mm -hmm. what, is, what does that mean? And what's a way that people can think about and take action on that? Well, I think it's huge that you own your career because, I mean, who else is going to own it, right? You know, if you if you want to drive somewhere, you can't put your car on a pot without an ad address. You need to know where you want to go. And then, you, you know, either drive or if you have a Tesla, you could program it, but you better still keep your hands on the steering wheel. But in order to manage your career, it's very important to know what you want to do. And you, maybe you can't know what you want to do in 20 years. That's fine. But trying to think, well, what would I want to do in, well, A, the very next step, but then three to five years, try to have a longer horizon overall, because there might be one or two steps between now and, you know, the next really big step. So I think it's important for you to know in your head, what are you passionate about? What's going to make you happy? You know, not, not everybody wants to be in sales or maybe they're in sales, but they'd rather be an SE or customer success person, or, you know, there's, there's definitely other roles, a channel person. So what is it you want to do? What do you like to do? Think about that. And then most companies that are larger have a way to, they have a format, like a template of a development plan. And if they don't, you know, I'm sure you could Google it. So like, write it down, put together a development plan of things you think you need. What do I need to develop to get to X role? I've read the job description. Maybe I've done an informational interview with a hiring manager in that particular area. And so I have an idea of what they would be looking mm -hmm. for. Here's what I might be missing today. Let's write down my development plan and my aspirations. And then work with your manager because, I mean, yes, we're going to support you as leaders. That's really important to make it clear to your manager and probably a few levels up what you want to do, because then, you know, they'll, they'll know what you want to do. If you're a top performer, they're going to work with you on developing those skills, giving you projects, opportunities, potentially training. And then let's say, you know, something something comes up. Now, it's probably going to be posted somewhere at your company, but maybe you hear about it early as a leader and you go, oh, huh, this person. They said they want to do this, and I know they've been working on this, and they've been making really great strides. When this opens up or when it's, you know, public information, I'm going to tell them, I'm going to suggest that they go for that role. So they, we will help you with the development. We will help you to identify roles and, and suggest a path, like informational interviews. If you haven't done it, do it early. 
because that way you know what the people that are hiring for the role you want are looking for. So you're ready when you get there versus, oh, there's a job, let me interview. And then maybe because it's very competitive today, maybe you're not presenting in your best possible way because you weren't as prepared. So, but the, the person, the person who wants to move up in advance has to own the development plan. They have to drive it and they have to make sure it's clear to the key stakeholders that those stakeholders know what they want to do. So I think that's what I mean by owning your career. Otherwise, you just can't wait around and go, well, geez, I'm going to do a good job and somebody will promote me. Maybe, but maybe not. Yeah. And what about, Lori, what, what about the person that works for a manager that's not wired that way? They don't do development plans. They're really not focusing on coaching and so that person, that employee may be in a tough, tougher spot if, if they're, especially if they're newer and they don't really know how to own their career yet. Mm-hmm. What other avenues do you suggest? Are there other people, types of people that they should be looking to bring into their life and, and have as part of their personal board of directors, if you will? Yes, personal board of directors. Great, great comment. And obviously that would be a sad situation if there's a leader who doesn't want to do that. But if that happens, or if maybe, you know, you also want to seek additional information, look around, look around in your company, maybe look at your, you know, extended uh, friend base, or I mean, honestly, other people, your parents may know, being that we were talking earlier about Gen Z's and see if there's somebody that you admire and ask them if they'll mentor you. I mean, mentoring you know, can be, can take many forms. It could be a quarterly meeting. It could be a monthly meeting. Maybe it's weekly. You know, maybe people don't have a lot of time. So it's, it's, it's the quarterly versus the weekly, but ask because people aren't, don't necessarily know that you need mentoring or want mentoring. And maybe they haven't even been thinking about being a mentor, but maybe they'll say yes. Maybe they'll say no, but okay. So they said, no, go ask somebody else. It's not like it's a huge rejection. There could be a reason for that, but ask if you don't ask, you're not going to get what you want. And that's probably true of anything. It's true of the job. It's true of the career. It's true of getting a mentor. It's true of getting raises sometimes. So there's a lot of things that you should ask for. You may get a no, but you might get a yes. Great point. Yeah. And you don't know unless you ask. Mm -hmm. So mentors, uh, I think what I hear you saying is they don't have to be uh, inside the company. Like they don't have, you don't have to work for your mentor. They don't even have to be inside the company. They can be outside. Um, I, I've heard you uh, either in one of your posts or a podcast that you've done, you've talked about coaching, mentoring, and you added a third bucket that I hadn't contemplated before, sponsorship or be, having a sponsor. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what that word sponsor means in this context um, and how that differs from, say, a mentor? Absolutely. So I, I would say, you know, in my mind and my definition, you know, a mentor is somebody, who, you know, they're going to coach you. They're going to give you ideas based on, you know, your goals. Like, okay, I want to, I want to become a director of something maybe. And they can help you because they can, you know, question you and talk to you about what you're doing now. And based on your discussion or maybe other feedback they've gotten from other people and, and guide you along the way. So they're mentoring you. But in addition to that, so you could have a mentor who's a sponsor or just a sponsor that's a sponsor and maybe doing less mentoring. A sponsor is somebody who's going to help you get opportunities for visibility. So, for example, let's say you want to move up and you want to be that director I mentioned. 
maybe you need to get in front of other stakeholders. And maybe this person is in a position where they can say, I want you to go to this meeting and present on my behalf, or I want to bring you to this meeting and I have you give a presentation, or I've arranged for you to present to this audience. That's an example of them sponsoring you to get visibility so that you get the visibility and more people see how talented you are and what your skill set is. So you have a, a broader base of recognition of people that may want to hire you, promote you, support you in your career. So a sponsor is somebody that helps you to uncover. It may not be a job opportunity specifically, but it's an opportunity to the next step through visibility or connections or, or something like that. Awesome. So what is, what is the responsibility of, of the, the person? And what I mean by that is what is the responsibility of the person that's being coached or maybe a, a better way to ask it is what's the responsibility of the person who's being mentored or sponsored? Because that mentor, that sponsor, they're, they're doing it out of the kindness of their heart. They're investing their time You've mentored and likely sponsored a ton of people. What are the people that you're most proud of? Um, what are they doing? Um, in contrast that to what the people that you've mentored that sometimes piss you off because <laughs> you know, they're not doing something. Well, it, if, when I've taken on mentors before, so you know, we'll have the conversation about their career goals and you know, the feedback from other people, typically – and typically I'll give them some homework. Maybe I'll say, you know, I really recommend that you read this book because it'll help you with some, some something you've been trying to conquer or some development skill or, you know, subscribe to this or you know, something, something like that Go, or some other exercise. So one of my mentees, um, she, a couple of things. So she had, you know, she was talking to me about a few things and I did, I recommended like a couple of different books for her to go read. And my expectation was that she did it. And then she reported back to me like, okay, well, I read whatever. I read four chapters since our last meeting. And here's the three things I got out of that. And here's the actions I'm going to take after learning this information. And, uh, you know, the same person was saying something like, oh, I really want to get back in shape. I'm like, okay, well, how do you plan to do that? And since I happen to be um, pretty passionate about fitness and health and, and working out, I tried to help her break it down and say, you know, if you haven't done it and you're not as motivated, don't go you know, go running for an hour, that's probably not going to be successful because you're going to hate how you feel after. Start small, just do this little thing and this other little thing. And, and at the end of the day, like she ended up getting promoted to the director role she wanted. She happened to lose weight and she got, she started eating healthy and got really, really fit. And she just felt so much better, like physically, which makes you feel better mentally. So she took the action that I asked her to take. And I think if you're mentoring somebody, you know, you're making an investment of time and you get something out of it. You learn from these people. But if I ask you to do X and you don't do it, I, I'm probably going to step away as your mentor because I can't really mentor somebody who doesn't want to take the steps to develop because that, that is the whole point of you asking me to mentor you is because you wanted to develop some skills or advance in your career. And, and that person, they have to be somebody in engineering. Like I'm not an engineering but they were still able to be successful, even though I'm in sales and they're engineering. So it's a good example, too, of having a mentor that's, you know, we were at the same company, but we were not in the same, you know, organizational structure or even in the same function. Wow. So they, you're the person you mentored advanced their career, they made more money and they lost weight. Uh, I think I might actually um, need you to be my mentor. <laughs> um, so, 
So I want to, let's do a scenario here. You're someone that you've mentored. Um, you know, you're not talking to them every week or every two weeks or something like that, but just someone that you've invested time with in the past, uh, you know, a couple times a year, maybe that person re reaches out to you and says, Hey, Lori, um, I want, I just wanted to let you know that, uh, I was just nominated for this training at my company, or I was just promoted, or I was just recognized for X or Y. And I really tie it back to something that we talked about. I just wanted to say thank you and just keep you up to date with what I'm doing. Is that meaningful? How meaningful is that from a mentor? That's hugely meaningful. Yes. I mean, I, I spent my time. I wanted my time, but I spent my time. The mentee did their actions and then later on they come back. I mean, that is, that's an amazing story. I love that. I love hearing about that because I want that person to continue to be successful. And some people come back and say, they ask themselves, you know, what would Lori do? Or, or what would Lori say? Like, that is very cool for me. That's very cool. In fact, I have a mentor that I had early in my career who's now 89 years old. And I just talked to him two weeks ago. He's been retired for know, probably 30 years and uh, we still talk because he awesome. had such an impact on my life and my career that I could not stay in touch with him. He lives on the East Coast. So it's not like I can run over and see him. I have seen him a couple times, uh, you know, in the years, but we stay in touch and it's just such a cool experience. And he is still sharp as a tack. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the, the reason I bring it up for two reasons. Um, one is I, you know, I coach a lot of people in, and at this stage, I coaching people at different levels. So it's not just executives. It's, I get a lot of calls from people who are like, Hey, I, can I run something by? Absolutely. I, I want to pay it forward. I've gotten so much help in my career. And so I, you know, I say, Hey, so who were your mentors? And Oh, this person, that person. I said, when was the last time you reached out to them? Yeah. Hey, how about reaching out to them, letting them know like what you're doing? Like, you know, just, something that you made, made you think of them, et cetera. And people just seems like, oh no, they're not, you know, they don't want to hear that. Or I just feel like people need mm -hmm. encouragement to reach out and that people that are, you know, further along in their career that invest the time take love to hear that whatever they said, someone actually heard it and did something with it. Um, and that thought of, and the second reason why I bring it up is I guess on the flip side, I get a lot of call. I get calls over my career where, Hey, uh, I haven't talked to you in five years, but you know, I'm in transition and I was wondering if you knew anybody like, wait, yeah, I want to help you. But if you're just calling people like me, when you need something, it's, I'm sure it's not just me, it's others. Like that's mm -hmm. not a good way to do it. And I'm sure you've had those folks in your uh, life as well. And it doesn't always feel that great. Right. I would say that's true. In fact, more recently, as, as you know, tech has had a number of layoffs and I'm getting, I mean, I'm getting people on LinkedIn, like, okay, yeah, I might know them, which is great. And some people, you know, you just have had a relationship that, Hey, it's cool. I haven't heard from you in a while. I've been busy too. And that's fine. But a lot of people I don't even know are like, Oh, Hey, could you refer me for this job at Cloudform? I'm like, I don't even know you. Like, how could I possibly refer you? This is my reputation you're talking about. So that's really random. And in fact, it's, it's actually so much on LinkedIn. I could sometimes I can't even read all the messages. And then yes, the, I talked to you, I said two words to you five years ago. Hey, I, well, that's, it's probably not going to work out because you 
you know, could have pinged me or sent a note or something like that. But, you know, am I perfect at that? I'm probably not perfect either at keeping in touch with people. But I certainly, that from a mentor perspective, like I mentioned, the gentleman I talked to a couple of weeks ago, we, we've always stayed in touch. And he just asked me to actually help out his granddaughter. Happy to do it because he did so much for me. So that could be a win-win. So I do think if you had a mentor or had a, a strong relationship with somebody, and maybe like a, another person I worked for a few companies ago, occasionally I'll see her on LinkedIn. I'm like, hey, how's it going? You know, it's just a quick how you doing? What's happening? Next time you're in San Francisco, let's get together. Or if I'm in your area, I'll give you a call. So I do find this really important. And people I've worked with at other companies, for example, last year was in Europe and I reached out in almost every country it was in. Hey, I haven't seen you in a while. I'm going to be here. Do you have time to get together? And going back to London in a few months, I'll be reaching out to some friends there. Hey, I'm coming to London again. Can we get together? And I'm actually doing a trying to do a mini get together at Oktoberfest in September with some friends in Europe. So I do try to stay in touch with people, you know, if at all possible, maybe not every week or every quarter, but frequently enough. Yeah. Yeah. B build the relationships, nurture the relationships when you don't need them so they can uh, be helpful when you do need mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, Pivoting a little bit, uh, tough lessons. What's one of those tough lessons you wish you learned earlier in your in your career that you, you'd like other people to hear about? And maybe sidestep that pothole. Well, I, I, actually, it's it's probably back to what you said earlier about building a personal board of directors. I didn't hear that until later in my career. So, although yes, I had some mentors along the way, I didn't think about it maybe as strategically as I should have. But setting up that personal board of directors. And although I don't know if it was a, quote unquote, a huge negative, maybe that's something that, you know, I could have advanced faster or differently if I had had that, or there are probably some mistakes that I made along the way that I wouldn't have made if I had had that personal board of directors. And if that had been something suggested to me and I well followed through, like I'm saying, you know, people should follow through and build that. So I think that is a key lesson that yeah, should have done sooner. Okay. So let's say um, you're coaching somebody and they've identified the folks that would make up that inner circle that they're a personal board of directors and, you know, they're people that they know and they trust and know them. What, any thoughts on like, what's one or one thing that they can do to nurture, you know, like tap into, make it mutually beneficial, like, what do they do with that personal board of directors? Do they have board, personal board of director meetings? You know, what, what are your thoughts there? Well, I think you could. I think it depends on who you are. In fact, the person who suggested this, that is something she does. But, you know, she's a company CEO and she sometimes has, and it's not the board of directors. It's a personal board of directors. Mm -hmm. I think one, you know, you need to stay in touch with them. But maybe there's a person over here that's on your personal board and a person in a different company. And for whatever reason, they need to connect because they have some question or some, some networking need. Introduce the two people. If there's mutual benefits between those two people, introduce them. So I think that's a great thing you can do. Or if you learn something from one person and maybe this other person has a similar challenge, oh, hey, I heard this tip from this person, maybe it'll help you. So I think sharing information, sharing your network, 
I think those are all important things you can do with a personal board of directors. Maybe you can get everybody together. I think that could be a challenge at some point in time, depending on where they're located and what they're doing and their schedules. But it's certainly possible to do that. I don't know if I would do that on a regular basis. I usually have people like maybe person one is really good at X and person two is good at Y. And so I might talk to different people when different issues come up. Or sometimes I might talk to three or four of them if it's something they could all help me with. So it kind of depends on, it's very situational. All right. And, you know, in the quote that I used to lead off this podcast, talked about um, a leader's ear, you know, not being made of rubber, but also not being made of steel. And that quote, I ran across it. You made me think of it. You know, you talked about, um, I've heard you talk about before, your listening tours. Um, you know, you go around, you, you listen to what's going on in your organization, what people are saying, you have your ear to the ground. What are you hearing these days? Well, oh, I love that. Especially since we just talked about the fact that, you know, most of my teams are early in career. So I'm talking to early in career people. And I first, I did, when I first started here, I've done it many companies, but when I first started here at Cloudflow and now it's around 18 months later, I'm kicking off a new one, trying to do them once a year. So what I'm hearing these days is, you know, people are actually worried because they've seen what's happened in the industry. They've seen a lot of layoffs. I think they're you know, they're worried about job security at a certain point. I mean, that's not something we've done at Cloudflare, but you just see it in other companies. So there's something there when you don't have a ton of experience that, oh, could this happen? And as, you know, as we grow, but maybe, maybe, you know, the, our revenue is going to continue to grow at a very fast pace, but based on people being more productive. So maybe the headcount doesn't grow as fast. Hypothetically, will there be opportunities for them? Like they're like, will like, you know, I, nobody want, not nobody. Few people want to be a BDR for a very long time. And I, I understand that. I mean, we would love, I've had other companies where I've had people have been BDRs for 10 years, but in most cases they want to move up and move on in 12 to 24 months. We have an eligibility policy. So if they meet certain criteria and have been enrolled 18 months, they can interview for jobs that are open. But it's very, very competitive because obviously managers are going to interview internal candidates and external candidates. So it's very competitive. Will, will they be able to get one of those jobs? Because they they you know don't want to continue to be a BDR. It's a BDR is a hard, hard job because talk about rejection. You have a lot of rejection, yeah. even more potentially than in sales because a lot of cold calling. So I think they're concerned about job security. Will he get promoted? This generation also wants to know about, you know, more training. Like, are we going to get training for X or Y? Like we do a significant amount of training. Well, not, not over, not too much. So they can't perform, but we do provide a lot of training, but it is something that that generation, I just find they, they just really want the training on, on products or on sales skills or, you know, depending on their role, they really continue to want ongoing training. So just like if you start them and onboard them, you can't stop as a company. You have to do something on a very regular basis to kind of satisfy that, that desire to learn. And on that topic, because some companies uh, just don't invest in their people when it comes to training, some companies, um, yeah, you know, can't, uh, you know, mm-hmm. do as much as they may want. What's your advice to that young professional who wants the training, 
but they're not getting it from their organization. And what I mean by that, it, like, cause I think you'd say, well, go get it somewhere else. Like go, <laughs> go online, right? Go figure it out. But may, maybe, um, maybe a more precise question is where, where could they go outside their organization to get training? And maybe what's an idea or a topic or two on which you'd suggest people hone their skills to prepare for what's coming down the road in the near future here? Well, again, it will depend on what they want to do because there are, there are, there are online classes that are at no cost. So they don't, I'm not even saying go spend a bunch of money of your own, but there are a lot of industry trends that I think we're all aware of. So one is in cybersecurity, very, very hot cyber, you know, there's cybersecurity violations and hacks and all these things that are constantly in the paper. So cybersecurity is very hot. How about knowing more about cybersecurity? A lot of the cloud vendors, you know, there's Amazon, Microsoft, and Google. A lot of the cloud vendors have certifications and cloud is still pretty hot technology and artificial intelligence. Lots and lots going on with artificial intelligence and there's plenty of free certifications in all of those technology areas. So you can know more about the technology, you know, even if you want to stay in sales, maybe you want to go sell. We happen to be an internet security company Maybe you want to go sell security or you want to sell artificial intelligence or know more about it because let's face it, AI is going to impact everybody's job everywhere. So you should know it's coming so you can prepare for it so you can understand what it is and how you will still be relevant and marketable because we will once AI, if there's more and more AI being, you know, becoming prevalent, but you should understand it. You can't like put on blinders. So those are some of the areas I would recommend. And there's also, um, I'm sure there's online and there's sales skills trainings that you can also get if that's really where you want to focus. So I think there's plenty of free options available. If you just do a Google search on topics that you can learn about, it's important to know what it is you want to learn about. What are you passionate about? What's interests you? Because I've been going through a certification. If you're not interested in something would just be uh, so brutal. Hmm. This thought just came into my mind. I, I don't know how many resumes you look at for, um, you know, f- for folks that you're hiring into the organization. Maybe you look at all of them. I don't know. But w- what's one thing that you wish people would do a better job of highlighting on their resume? And what's one thing you, <laughs> you've seen enough of time to stop doing that? And well, if you don't like that question, we'll just keep yeah. going. But I'm just kidding. No, it's fine. Because, well, we've been doing a ton of hiring. And turns out that Cloudflare... I got like 1.2 million applicants for about, I think it was around a thousand jobs. So we get a lot of resumes and depending on the role. Let me stop you there. Let me stop you there. I just want to make sure I heard it. 1.2 million applicants for a thousand jobs. Okay. We're actually very popular, very hot company. A lot of people do want to work here, which is fantastic. And so there are a lot of resumes that we get. And so I, I just recently hired a director. So I, I did view a lot of those resumes, although, you know, there are certainly AI tools that will help look for keywords for to whittle down some of that. But we've also been hiring a lot of BDRs and just to sort of, again, leading from the front, we were in a period where I just, the management team was so, so, so busy and we needed to hire very, very fast. So I was going in, you know, after hours and like reviewing a hundred resumes or something you know, in the evening just to get through like hiring manager or reject. Right. And one of the things that I found is 
Well, first of all, some people, you know, they applied for like 15 jobs. Well, if you apply for 15 jobs, I know that you are just desperate. Like you don't really know what you want to do. And that that's not 15 jobs at, at Cloudflare. 15 jobs at Cloudflare, like yeah, all over so, the place. SC, so, rap, yeah, you know. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Nobody Developer. can apply yeah. for 15 jobs. It's just, you can't. Yeah. So I don't really appreciate that. And the other thing is if you're, if you're going to apply for a job, like ideally you've read the job description and you know, every resume should be tweaked to align your skills with what the company is looking for. And what are the key words that they, they're in their job description that you can match up to. Now, this is not saying you should you know lie on your resume because you definitely shouldn't do that. But if you have the skills, try to, you know, make the adjustments. I'm not saying rewrite the whole thing, but make the adjustments to match what the company is looking for and submit a co cover letter that just shows because so many people don't and that's added value. That's differentiation, write a personalized specific cover letter for that role. Take the time to do that because it does show the hiring manager that you really want this particular position. And then after the interview, so it not, doesn't have to do with your resume question, write a thank you note. I know that's maybe like old school here, but write a thank you note. Again, since so many people know, it differentiates you. And just to connect the dots, we I uh, hosted a guest that we dropped the podcast like earlier this week, a sales leader out in the Bay Area, Ben Kennedy, and he works for an AI company. He was talking about how to leverage AI if you're uh, a professional, if you're a salesperson. And one of the things he talked about was just something as simple as putting your, you know, A, do, sending your thank you note. But then before you send it, putting your thank you note into, let's say, chat GBT and saying, edit for brevity, clarity, and effectiveness. And what his comment was, was 100% of the time when he's put something that he was going to send to somebody into the chat GBT and he got feedback on it. It was better. It's not mm -hmm. writing it for him. He's putting his hard work in there mm -hmm. and saying, hey, can you make some suggestions on improvement? Those improvements, he said, were always there and, uh, and available. And it's stupid not to take advantage of them. So um, kind of co take connecting the dots on a few things that mm -hmm. you're saying there with some other stuff that I've been hearing. I do agree with that. And I, but of course, if you put it in chat GPT, so I think it is a great idea, but definitely reread it because sometimes it, <laughs> you still need to make some edits. I do think it can make it more concise and more, you know, just to the point, but yes, write it yourself first. Don't let chat GPT do the work and then edit it, do it the other way. So I do appreciate what Ben said and I, I completely agree. Um, so Cloudflare, 1.2 million applications for a thousand jobs. Uh, that's amazing at any company. Um, obviously, uh, Cloudflare uh, popular. Tell us, uh, what does Cloudflare do and uh, what attracted you to the company? Well, Cloudflare is an internet security company. And what we enable businesses to do or our buyers to do is to secure, protect, and connect people data and applications everywhere. So we have a, a huge network with you know over 300 locations where we run because we are a cloud SaaS vendor. And so if you are, you're, you know, you're connecting your customers to your network and you're connecting your employees to your network, plus the applications and data you run in your network. So we can pull all that together to make sure it's protected and secure. Protected, secure. 
uh, mm-hmm. huge topics. Um, and what attracted you to the company? You could have you know, taken your talents to a lot of different places. Why there? Well, actually, I mean, Cloudflare has a really great reputation, which I did know about. And um, I was fortunate enough to be approached by, you know, somebody referred me to for a role here. Actually, wasn't even looking for a job at the time. And they reached out to me and I'm like, hey, Cloudflare is a pretty hot company. I should, yeah, I should at least talk to them, right? And it was, again, you got to see what's out there. You may not even be thinking about moving, but you do yourself a disservice, I think, if you have an opportunity, you should at least explore it. So after talking to the recruiter and then fortunately being, you know, asked if I would like to interview with the hiring manager, I did that. And I have to say, I, I, I fell in love with the company. I mean, when people talk about the culture here and the values and all the people I met during the interview process, they were excited and they were happy and they were passionate and all of that, you know, you can do all that in an interview and you get there and it's not what it was portrayed but Cloudflare is everything that was portrayed. In fact, it's even better than it was portrayed. And I mean, every company has, you know, this and that. I mean, the opportunity to come in and, you know, fix things that might be slightly broken is always fun because it's better than just running along and maybe getting bored. But they have a great culture. And the people that work here are absolutely fantastic. You feel very included. They focus on you know, things that are important to me, like diversity and, you know, the right, the, the right business outcomes. So it is absolutely a fantastic place to work. And I, I have no regrets about making the decision to come here. So I think those, the 1.2 million applicants have a right. If you can get into Cloudflare, it's a great place to be. In fact, there's an article we have on one of our blogs that talked about, we are a top 100 uh, most loved company to work for. And, you know, that's a study that is done by, you know, an independent vendor. So it's true. We are a really best loved company that people want to work for. That's great. Uh, that's great. And, and just create reminding people that there are that there, there is that list out there of the top 100 most loved companies and it's objective. Um, you know, it's good. It's a good reminder. You mentioned something about which your, uh, which, which is important to you. And you talked about diversity and I know we've had, you know, side conversations on this. Um, I'd like to, we could spend the whole time talking about that, but Lori, most leaders that, that I know, if not all, uh, I, I don't know someone who said, I don't think it's a good idea. Um, I'm sure they're out there, but most people do think it's a good idea to build diverse teams, diversity of, uh, of thought, right? Obvious, not obvious, all different types of diversity. Mm-hmm. People get that. What I hear come out of people's mouths, it's almost like, yeah, but, and I, they don't, they're not, uh, they don't have ill intentions, but they say something like, yeah, but I don't want to sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have a number to hit. And, and so I think the implication there is, is that they feel in some way that by hiring a, a, a candidate that would be considered diverse is that they're sacrificing talent in some way. What do you say to those people? Well, first of all, you, sh- you shouldn't sacrifice. I mean, there are plenty of qualified candidates for most roles. So, and, and those candidates, there's a diverse spectrum of candidates. So I don't think that people do have to sacrifice to build a diverse team. And there are more than enough you know, business metrics that have metrics measurable 
outcomes that are tied to diversity, like companies are more profitable, they're more innovative, they come up with more creative solutions. So there's all these great business reasons to have a diverse organization. So A, well, you should, because you're going to miss out on that. And if you're very intentional with your recruiting, some people say, oh, I, I can't find any you know, X type of candidates. Well, you have to be intentional because maybe, maybe it is a bit harder. It doesn't mean you have to have delays because as you said, they have to make their their goals. But if you're intentional and you think about it and you have a plan up front about how you're going to go recruit, how you're going to identify and, and recruit diverse talent, you will be able to define and find that diverse talent and they will be qualified. I would never compromise on hiring somebody because I, I had to hire like somebody of a certain gender or race or, or something. I would never do that. You can't afford to compromise on the quality of the candidate but I just don't believe people have to if they are intentional about looking for, okay, I want to at least, at least interview a certain number of diverse candidates. I'm not saying we should have hiring quotas of hire X number of women versus men. That I don't agree with that. But if you have a, have a diverse interview panel and have a diverse slate of candidates, if you have um, only four women, say, that you interview, you know, there's probably a 25% chance that you might hire one. But if you can find eight then those numbers go up exponentially. So there's a lot higher probability that you will hire a diverse candidate. And of course, they're going to be qualified because you're going to whittle out the ones that aren't. So it's about being intentional and figuring out where are we going to get the, you know, maybe there's a job fair for, you know, uh, you know people of you know color or Latinos. It, it, there's so many opportunities out there to find diverse talent, but you have to, you have to plan it so you don't have any delays when you're trying to hire and you make sure you have a, a diverse slate. And then from that, pick the best person. Yeah, um, the, the word intentional uh, it rings loudly to me uh, because I, I, I was introduced to that. Like I spent a lot of time on this uh, back at, at, in my Oracle days and I learned a lot and I learned about the stats that you just rattled off about the benefits of diverse teams. I, honestly, I'd never looked at, at it that way. I never looked at like, oh, my team's not diverse or it is or it isn't. I just never looked at it. When it was brought to my attention, I started looking at it. Um, yeah, I, I saw it. And, you know, uh, it basically, we had a Viking ship, like we did, like it was a Viking ship, like it was all dudes, like at, at the time. And I'm um, like, hmm, how did we get there? And so we had an intentional process and, and we found out how hard it was. And I remember this uh, 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 female leader that worked for me, super talented, um, came in and she was really helping lead the charge in this particular area on building a diverse team. And she came in and it's like, hey, Matt, like we've been focusing on this, but the team's still all dudes. And I'm like, hmm. And I got a little mad, like I got a little defensive. And I'm like, okay, calm down. And I said, uh, you know, you, you, you are the person who, like the leader of this area, of this part of the business, and you are the, the buck stops with you. You see every single resume. You are involved in the last minute signing off of every person that's hired. What do we, I got to ask you why it's that way. And so um, she took it, like we dug into it. And the point was, is that it, we had to work better with recruiting to say, we need, if you send us a hundred resumes, at least 50 of, of them need to be 
women and, and, and 50 men or whatever it was. But if we didn't change anything with recruiting, you got to hire, you got to fill the spot. And, uh, but we just weren't seeing the candidates and that was really long winded, but that's, that was like my reality as someone who was not trying to be obstinate in the process. Does that make sense? That totally makes sense. So it, it is about being intentional. And, you know, as you said, you use the word dudes. If you have a bunch of dudes, it's really hard to come up with a diverse interview panel. And sometimes women go, well, this company's all dudes. Why do I want to work there? Right. Because you have sure. to you have to help make it attractive for them. Like, oh, you're very being very intentional about making it more diverse. And this is why we want not not why we want you, because we, we want you because you have the skills. But we want to begin this process. And yes, you might be one of the first women in this case, but we are intentionally looking for more women and that will happen over time. So you, you have to make it attractive to the people because a lot of people don't want to be women or, you know, they don't want to be like the only one. I think they can feel kind of isolated or potentially not that you would, again, not you would purposely be non-inclusive, but I think sometimes people just don't think about it. And I mean, I, I can talk about sports, but maybe some women don't. And so if, if you dudes are just talking about football all day or, or whatever sport and they're not into that, that might feel uninclusive. And you're, you're not thinking about that. Like that's what your passion is. So again, there's also being intentional about once people get on board, how are you going to make sure they feel included and, and don't do an outing that, well, certainly don't do an outing to a strip club because that would be very uninclusive. But, you know, again, you might need to think about what's your team building exercise. What are your outings? Are they inclusive? All right. Don't do outings at strip clubs. I'm with you. It, 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 hey, look, it's happened. Let's, uh, let's yeah, face it. I, I mean, I don't care if you do recently, it. it may be, tales, yeah. What everybody tales. wants no, to no, do. No, I didn't do it. I'm just saying <laughs> I've, we've, we've all heard the crazy stories. We could pull the, the crazy stories out of the, uh, out of the, out of the, the attic and, and, and talk about those. That's a whole nother type of podcast, all this stuff that went <laughs> on, um, in our crazy business over the years. Um, let's segue and a couple, a couple of questions as we close out. You brought up coaching just now. You brought up, uh, like I think you said something about football coaching. And so my question is more broad. It's not football-based or anything. But when I say coach, when you hear that word coach and you think about coaches that you know of who's you know been out there and, and maybe even some someone that our audience might know, like who's the best coach um, if you're asked that question? Who's the best coach in your mind and what are a couple of their attributes? Wow. So – to think about this one for a second best coach okay well i'll just tell you one that i'm not that i personally know but see right i definitely mm -hmm. think like steve kerr is a great coach for the warriors because he's he, well he's been a, he's been a player right so he you know he, he played so he knows what it's like to be a player he's he's done the job he's done the work he leads from the front i you know you read articles he seems very very engaged with his team he seems to be like a you know genuine human being very caring very strategic also when it comes to playing. Now we're not having the best year ever now, but he's got, he's got his own championships, his own rings for when he played. And then he's got, an, you know, four different championships with the Warriors. So he is obviously a very good coach because he's been very successful. He's good at recruiting, you know, maybe not every recruit is perfect, but he's built a wonderful team in multiple times because there's people leaving and people coming. So I say he's a really good example of a great coach, you know, in the basketball arena. 
And if you had to guess, because I, I get it, you don't you don't know him personally. Um, what would a player on Steve Kerr's team never do or say? That you, yeah. Well, never do or say. Well, hmm. I don't know. There's of course been a little controversy with Draymond Green, but you've never heard somebody you know being. I know probably know who I'm talking about on another team now. Being at a party with a gun, let's say that, or again, having pictures taken. Um, as you heard, again, another player on another team has done things like that. So I don't think you're going to see his players acting out in that way. So I think you're not going to see that because I think they're, you know, they're professional and they, well, hopefully, hopefully they know better and they're not going to embarrass, you know, the brand and the organization the by doing, yeah, those types of things carry themselves professionally off the field. Yeah, if they mm -hmm. want to mix it up a little bit on, you know, they're be on the court, that might be considered scrappy, right, Draymond? All right. Exactly. Um, and then, uh, Lori, la la last question is, can you share a story of someone whose coaching had an impact on your career? I will go back to the person I mentioned earlier, who's the, the man, gentleman, who's 89 years old now. So early in my career, he was the, it, it wasn't called a CRO then, but he was the, you know, VP of worldwide sales. And I was actually over in the marketing organization. We, we'd done an acquisition. So it was kind of, it got a little bit weird because they had a marketing person. There was some overlap and, you know, I was, I was fine, but he said, but we had a leader in professional services leave the company. And he said, you know, Hey, you know, I'd like you to go to this job. I'm like, I don't know anything about that. Like, I don't know anything. He goes, don't worry about it. You're smart and I, I believe in you. He goes, and I'm here to help. So I want you to go run professional services. You'll figure it out and let me know if you need help. So I moved over, never done anything with professional services before. And clearly if I was like, I don't know how to do it, probably didn't have as much confidence then as I, I might have now. So I went over and grew revenue 85% and grew profitability, 25%. So had a very, very successful run. And, and I figured it out by the people on my team helping me, reading conferences, talking to my mentor, as he was always there. He was very patient. He was always open, willing to answer my questions. You know, I could, well, back then there probably weren't cell phones, but I could email him. I could stop by his office. We met regularly. So a lot of availability to work with me. And that was awesome. So a couple of years later, they actually did decide to bring in somebody else back then. They called it a gray hair. We won't go too far into that. So it was a little bit frustrating because I felt like I'd done a great job. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, he's like, look, don't worry about it. You know, they do have probably, you know, 20 years experience. So we do, because since you've grown it so much and we see now there's so much potential, we do want somebody more senior to come in. I was like, eh, well, okay. He goes, well, yeah, I've been thinking about this other role and, and I'd like to build an inside sales team. And, and I'll tell you at the time, inside sales was not a thing. I mean, it was the pioneering days of, of inside sales. People really hadn't heard of it. There were, there were very few teams in existence, you know, in Silicon Valley. And I'm like, and he's like, I was thinking about this person. I'm thinking about this. He goes, what do you think? I'm like, oh, I could do that. Again, knew nothing about it, but because he believed in me, for the first role and he had mentored me and coached me and sponsored me. I had a lot more belief in myself. I'm like, I can do anything. I don't know anything about it, but I can go conquer that. 
And in that particular case, I moved over and built a team. We went from zero to 50 million in two years. And it's, it's really defined my entire career because I've been like, there's been a few other, you know, other roles I've had along the way, but mostly I spent the rest of my career leading, building, transforming inside sales organizations. I've written a book on it. I'm very, very passionate. I mean, talk about finding your passion. And I don't think he necessarily knew uh, that was going to be my passion, but he did say to me, you know, he's like, once you're in sales, you'll never want to leave because, you know, sales is fun. You got the clothes, you got commissions, you have upside. It's, it's great to be selling. And so that to me is, is a fabulous story. And that's one of the reasons that we keep in touch. Cause I think he, of all my mentors, you know, probably just because I was so moldable at the time has had probably the biggest impact as, as a single mentor on my life and my career. That's an awesome story. Um, thanks for sharing. Uh, have you ever told him? I mean, I know you oh, keep in touch yeah. with them, but have you ever told them? Yeah, good. Yeah, yeah I think I, I talk about it in my book and, and I, I tell him a lot. I did a, a post on mentors and he was like, he was the one, and, you know, tagged him. And absolutely, I've told him and I, I've told many people that story because, because I love it. And I was back East with my husband. I took my husband, introduced him. <laughs> like, I, I, I love this guy. He's, he's been amazing. Yeah, I, I've heard it said, I'm going to paraphrase it, but, you know, four of the most powerful words that a coach can say is, I believe in you. And um, because sometimes they say it and we don't believe in ourselves and they get us to start believing in our in ourselves. So um, really, really cool story. Hey, if you're going to write a book uh, now, what, what, what would, if you had to commit to a topic right this second on the, your next book, what would it be? What would the topic be? I might write a book about something about, you know, women in revenue, women in sales, how to be successful. I don't, I don't know exactly what the title might be, but I think mm-hmm. because of my passion with regards to diversity and I, and, you know, I've run a women in technology, um, um, you know, employee resource group at another company. We have a, a group here called Women Flare. It's something I'm so passionate about. And I get a lot of questions about it. Well, how do you do this? Or how do you do this? Or give me advice. So I think I'd want to do something around that. Awesome. Well, um, I, I hope you do that. I can't really contribute much uh, to it, other but I can read it. So um, and uh, so look look forward to seeing that at some point, Lori. Um, I think that's a really good place to leave it. We've covered a lot of ground. We talked about the importance of building diverse teams. We talked about mentorship, coaching, sponsorship, owning your own career, um, people who have had a, a positive impact. What the right attributes are, positive attrib- attributes are of a coach. So uh, thanks for investing the time. Um, with us today and uh, look forward to talking to you soon in the future. Well, thanks for having me, Matt. I really enjoyed our conversation. And as always, it's also great to see you anytime. All right. And for everyone out there listening and watching, thanks for doing that. Uh, when you engage with the with the show, when you see it on LinkedIn, when you see it on YouTube, watch it, hit the like button. If you like it, let us know what you like. Let us know what you don't like and let us know what you'd like to see more of. We want to provide content that's actionable and interesting. So thank you. And until next time, coach them if you want to keep them. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Coach to Scale, How Modern Leaders Build Coaching Cultures. For show notes and other episodes, visit us at coachem.io. 
That's C-O-A-C-H-E-M dot I-O. And follow us on Twitter at Coachem Now. See you all next week. Thanks for joining. And remember, coach them if you want to keep them.